0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So this is part two of a two-parter. And in part one, we looked at the early roots of commercial aviation and how airplanes went from being the latest invention to starting to morph into a very real industry, at least until World War II kind of put a damper on commercial aviation for a little while. And in this episode, we're gonna go from the international agreement that took place near the end of World War II that prepared for a global airline industry, all the way up to the deregulation of the U.S. commercial aviation industry in the late 1970s. And then there's like a special bonus at the end. This is kind of a double episode uh, because we have a special guest. John Honchman came by the studio for a visit recently and talked about his relationship with today's airline industry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it is very fun and silly chat. Uh, So we are going to hop right into talking about how various world powers were thinking about how to make air travel work after the war was over.
1: In late 1944, the Convention on International Civil Aviation took place in Chicago. You'll see it referred to colloquially as just the Chicago Convention. This convention established the International Civil Aviation Organization, the ICAO, which is a UN branch to regulate air travel
0: at the international level. And during the convention, the so-called five freedoms of the air were developed. Per the terms, each of the participating nations would grant all other participating nations these five freedoms. There was some exclusionary language about if they had had a previous conflict before this, that there could be some wiggle room in these, but these are the five freedoms. To fly across its territory without landing, to land for non-traffic purposes, to put down passengers, mail, and cargo taken on in the territory of the country whose nationality the aircraft possesses, to take on passengers, mail, and cargo destined for the territory of the country whose nationality the aircraft possesses, to take on passengers, mail, and cargo destined for the territory of another agreeing nation, and to put down passengers, mail, and cargo coming from any such territory. In short, it's all a, hey, we're all going to be cool with each other, flying in each other's airspace and landing in each other's countries.
1: The purpose of the ICAO was also defined during the convention, and it was stated as follows, quote, whereas the future development of international civil aviation can greatly help to create and preserve friendship and understanding among the nations and peoples of the world, yet its abuse can become a threat to the general security. And whereas it is desirable to avoid friction and to promote that cooperation between nations and peoples upon which the peace of the world depends, Therefore, the undersigned governments, having agreed on certain principles and arrangements in order that international civil aviation may be developed in a safe and orderly manner, and that the international air transport services may be established on the basis of equality of opportunity and operated soundly and economically,
0: have accordingly concluded this convention to that end. It was signed on December 7, 1944, but the ICAO acted as a provisional agency until 26 of the 52 signing countries had ratified it locally, and that happened on March fifth,
1: 1947. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, the British Overseas Airways Corporation built and introduced the world's first commercial jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet. These jets were beautiful and stylish, and ultimately, they were disastrous. In 1953 and 1954, there were three terrible, fatal accidents. When de Havilland comets broke apart during their flights, all the passengers and crew died in each of these disasters, and after the third one, the comet was taken out of production, and a formal investigation was launched into the matter.
0: You can absolutely find accounts of pilots and other people in the industry who have remained very angry for a very long time about the fact that it was not, those measures were not taken after the first accident. But the investigation found that in each of these three cases, there had been cracks in the fuselage of the failed planes that was caused by the pressurization cycle and a riveting system that wasn't able to manage the stretching forces that were in play. The skins of these planes was just too thin, and the squared-off corners of the windows cracked when that skin was stressed by takeoff and landing. The comets flew beautifully when they initially went into active use, although there are accounts from pilots who flew the comets that suggested that there were a number of control problems with them that were also a concern, at least within uh, the, the pilot community, but... Their construction and their materials were simply not adequate for ongoing use, and they were ultimately blamed for the failures.
1: These incidents were obviously tragic, but they also led to significant improvements in aircraft manufacture companies around the world, including Boeing and Douglas, made use of the findings to improve their own designs and to safeguard against similar failures. If you've ever wondered why planes all have those curved, rounded, edged windows, it's because of the findings that were made
0: during this investigation. Another tragedy took place in 1956 that had a significant impact on commercial aviation in the United States. On the morning of June 30th, a Transworld Airlines flight bound for Kansas City, Missouri, left Los Angeles at 9.01 a.m. after a 31-minute maintenance delay. Three minutes later, a United Airlines flight headed to Chicago also left Los Angeles. Due to
1: turbulence, the TWA flight was granted permission to go up to a higher altitude. That put it at the same altitude as the United flight The United pilot wasn't notified of the other plane that was near it, and technology was very different at the time. Pilots had to rely a lot more on visual surveillance in these circumstances, and the cloud cover meant they did not have nearly as much visibility. At 10.31 a.m., the planes collided over the Grand Canyon, and all the passengers on both flights died. This was not the first mid-air collision like this. In the years leading up to it, there had been more than five dozen others, but this one was a lot larger than any of these others. It made it painfully clear that safety procedures and regulations had not kept up with the rapid growth of the airline industry after World War II.
0: Yeah, in the course of just a little over a decade... It had ex- it had way more than doubled and there were just a lot more planes in the sky to be managed and in a moment we're going to talk about the legislation that came about in response to this incident and this bigger problem that it, it really brought into focus. but first we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors <music> In 1958, Oklahoma Senator A.S. Mike Monroney introduced a bill that would create a federal aviation agency. On August 23rd, 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Federal Aviation Act, which created the new agency, established its purpose as providing for safe and efficient airspace use, and transferred the work of the Civil Aeronautics Authority over to it. On November 1, 1958, the first Federal Aviation Agency administrator was appointed. That was retired Air Force General Elwood Pete Quesada, who took the helm of the organization. As outlined in the act, the agency began its operations 60 days after his appointment on December 31, 1958. For the agency's first several years, it actually had no official office space set aside for it. Uh, so until it moved into the newly built federal office building at 800 Independence Avenue in 1963, its staff was scattered around the Washington, D.C. area sort of piecemeal wherever they could find desk space.
1: On May 1st, 1961, the first U.S. airliner was hijacked. The National Airlines flight was forced to divert from its Miami to Key West route and to land in Cuba. This was the first of four flights diverted to Cuba over the course of three months that prompted President Kennedy to hold a press conference announcing new air travel security measures. In his statement, he said, quote, "...now let me say that we have ordered today on a number of our planes a border patrol man who will ride on a number of our flights. We are also going to insist that every airplane lock its door and that the door be strong enough to prevent entrance by force, and that possession of the key be held by those inside the cabin so that pressure cannot be put on the members of the crew outside to have the door opened." The following year, the first air marshals were sworn into service. I think there's an episode of the podcast Criminal that kind of talks about this era of airline hijackings and how there
0: were a lot of them. (laughs) Yes. And to be clear, this was not the first time that an airline was hijacked. that had uh, I think the first one is in the 1930s. Um, but this is the first time that a, a US commercial plane was hijacked. and so and uh, several started happening very quickly. It really did make for some fairly significant concerns, thus this uh, determination by the president. But shifting gears, in 1966, the U.S. Congress authorized the creation of the Department of Transportation, which started operations in spring of the following year. And as part of this new organization, the Federal Aviation Agency was rolled up under it, and it was renamed the Federal Aviation Administration, becoming the FAA we know today. In
1: 1968, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization was formed initially by New York air traffic controllers who wanted to ensure that their members were represented in negotiations with the FAA. The relationship between PATCO and the FAA had plenty of difficulties over the years. In 1970, the union held a sick-out of 3,000 workers, which resulted in an increase in worker benefits, although things remained pretty strained.
0: And then more than a decade later in 1981, after a long series of contract negotiations resulted in a standoff, more than 12,000 PATCO members went on strike, grounding approximately one-third of U.S. commercial flights. After an ultimatum from President Ronald Reagan to return to work, I think they had 48 hours to do it, the strikers refused and they were dismissed from their jobs permanently by the FAA. A small fraction of those people were eventually reinstated, but the drop in workforce was a huge strain on air traffic control and the FAA, and the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization folded. There was no union for air traffic controllers until the National Air Traffic Controllers Association stepped into that role in 1987. And this, of course, is a very quick version of a protracted and much more involved story that As we said at the top of episode one of this two-parter, there are a lot of pieces in in this brief history that could be their own episodes and even multiple episodes. This is one of them because it's a fairly significant moment. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it had a lot of effects, not just in the world of air travel and air traffic control, but also in labor rights in general, like huge In 1973, the Paris Air Show featured two different supersonic planes, and each of them vied to become the leader in what they thought was going to be the next stage of commercial aviation. The Soviet-designed Tupolev Tu-144 had already made a name for itself. It had first flown on the last day of 1968, and it had achieved the goal of supersonic flight half a year later in the summer of 1969.
0: The Concorde, on the other hand, had its first flight in early 1969. That was two months after the TU-144, though it had been showcased at an event in Toulouse, France in 1967. It just didn't leave the hangar during that event. It was kind of like, look at this plane. We're not flying it, but it's cool. It had been developed in a partnership between British Aircraft Corporation and the French firm Aerospatiale after an initial agreement to the co-development had been struck by the British and French governments in 1962. Boeing had been working on a
1: supersonic plane, but its funding was canceled by the U.S. Congress in 1971, and it never made it past the design phase. At the 1971 Paris Air Show, both the TU-144 and the Concorde were on hand. Both the planes and the rivalry between
0: them drummed up a lot of excitement at the prospect of supersonic travel. And so at the 1973 show, the two competitors were once again on hand. The Concorde's demonstration flight was solid and uneventful. It went perfectly. But the TU-144, which had a much more grandiose and ambitious show featuring flight tricks, broke apart in midair, and it crashed into a nearby village, killing eight people on the ground as well as six crew. While the Soviet craft did continue development, the tragedy at the Paris air show really set it back too far to compete with the Concorde. Three years later, in 1976, the Concorde began carrying passengers on supersonic flights. They ran at an altitude of 60,000 feet and could make the Atlantic crossing in three hours. You could also apparently see the curvature of the Earth when you looked out the window.
1: While the Concorde was a massive step forward technologically in the field of air travel, you'll notice they are not running today. There aren't really any supersonic passenger jets. Concerns about the noise limited the Concorde's flight patterns. The mid-70s oil crisis also caused most of the orders for jets to be canceled. They ran exclusively as parts of British Airways and Air France fleets. The tickets were also expensive. And then in July of 2000, an Air France Concorde flight had a catastrophic failure just after takeoff when a blown tire caused the fuel tank to rupture and the plane was consumed by fire. 113 people died. All the remaining Concorde jets were refitted with new fuel tanks, but in 2003, the last Concorde flight took off from JFK International Airport in New York and landed in London.
0: There is another company developing a supersonic jet right now called Boom, uh, which is apparently on track, but I I don't know how they will manage things like price point. Um, Yeah. The Concorde was definitely the the airline of the Richard Fane. Yeah.
1: I also imagine, like, given how much discussion there has been, especially recently, about how much of a contributor to, uh, like, global warming, air travel industry in general is, I imagine it would be really hard to get funding for something that would allow more flights to happen more often faster. Because... If you can make that transatlantic flight in three hours, probably the airline is not going to be like, okay, we'll take the next four hours off. (laughs) Like, they're probably going to want to load it up with people again and fly it more.
0: I don't know, because I don't know if there will be enough people that can afford to be doing that. That's also a point. It's a, I I don't, I would not feign to have a a firm grasp of their business plan. But there is one in development. We'll see if it um, succeeds where Concorde, I mean, Concorde ran for a while, But ultimately, for all those reasons we mentioned, uh, it just could not sustain itself. But as the 1970s stretched on, air travel in the US was governed by what had become an inflexible system that had a lot of problems. Air travel remained costly, it was something out of reach of the average person. For a lot of people, it still is. This was also a very costly time in the United States in the wake of the oil crisis. So even the existing passenger base, like the people that could afford air travel, that base shrank because money got a lot tighter for a lot of people. The various regulations that had been put in place by the federal government could sometimes be at odds with the efficiency of the airlines. And those costly fares uh, that we mentioned were regulated by the government, so airlines had to compete for their customers based on service alone. But they were thus guaranteed a certain return on every flight. There was also this huge burden on the government on keeping the Civil Aeronautics Board in charge of regulating the air routes and fares in the industry, and that agency had grown really inefficient at managing all of it as the industry had grown. There are a lot of um, reports that you'll read of airlines submitting proposed routes, like saying, hey, we want to run from, uh, you know, Chicago to San Diego, and here's the route that we propose, and then it would sit somewhere in the system uh, for like six years, and then the government would come back and be like, oh, uh, this is kind of a stale idea now. We don't. You need to resubmit. And, like, those Thanks. kinds of problems were happening a lot.
1: <laughs> as Congress started to examine this issue, economist Alfred E. Kahn, who also served as the chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Board, championed deregulation as the solution to the problem. Kahn promoted the idea of flexible pricing and air travel as something that would benefit both the consumer and the airlines.
0: And thanks to Kahn's work to promote deregulation, the Airline Deregulation Act was introduced by Nevada Senator Howard Cannon on February 6, 1978. It was signed into law by President Jimmy Carter on October 24th of that year. Its full title was An Act to Amend the Federal Aviation Act of 1958 to encourage, develop, and attain an air transportation system which relies on competitive market forces to determine the quality, variety, and price of air services and for other purposes. As for the
1: airlines, this was not a welcome event. A lot of them had lobbied against the act while it was under consideration in the hopes that it would not be made into law. There were very real concerns that deregulation would destabilize the entire industry and put some companies out of business, and that did happen. Airlines, including Pan Am, Eastern, and Braniff International, among others, went under after this.
0: Yeah, it's such a huge shift and there were a lot there are a lot of articles at the time talking about how airlines had to completely shift their business model because as we mentioned they were up to that point competing on the basis of service and so suddenly to have to shift from we offer you everything to we offer you cheaper fares right. is a very difficult thing to do and on in on the internal end like that's a big budget shift to make in how you run everything, going from like, oh, we're going to serve you beautiful meals on fine China, and that will be what sets us apart, to no more fine China. We can't afford that. But people still wanted to fly those airlines and get what they thought were those airline experiences. So it was a real problem. In the years after the Deregulation Act, a number of aspects of the commercial aviation industry solidified. So the hub-and-spoke network that probably most of us are familiar with became the standard, with airlines concentrating on certain cities as their main bases of operations, the hubs, with uh, airports that flights are routed through, and then the spokes are the routes that run out of that airport to smaller airports. And this idea became the standard business model for a lot of airlines by the 1990s. Low-cost carriers also emerged in the market, offering pared-down services for much lower fees. And the big consequence of all of this is that more people started flying, and more often. It really speaks to that statistic you mentioned earlier, that proportionally more people in the U.S. fly Mm -hmm. regularly than in other places.
1: While deregulation of the airline industry continues to have its merits and its issues debated by industry insiders and economists and also travel writers, (laughs) Khan defended deregulation for decades. In an article that he wrote in the 1990s, he said, quote, the United States Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 was a dramatic event in the history of economic policy. It was the first thorough dismantling of a comprehensive system of government control since the Supreme Court declared the National Recovery Act unconstitutional in 1935. It also was part of a broader movement that with varying degrees of thoroughness transformed such industries as trucking, railroads, buses, cable television, stock exchange, brokerage, oil and gas, telecommunications, financial markets, and even local electric and gas utilities. You could have a million conversations going on for years about the pros and cons of deregulations of all those things that I just read.
0: (laughs) Yes, and to be clear, a lot of what led to deregulation was they had essentially just watched the railroad industry really, really kind of fall apart in some ways because of regulations. And that's why they were like, we don't want the same thing to happen to the airline industry. So that was another another factor that led Congress down this path. Uh, But this leads us to our special guest for this episode, John Hodgman. Uh, John's new book, Medallion Status, is about, among other things, his relationship with airline loyalty programs. And that is something that arose in the immediate wake of deregulation as airlines all tried to find new ways to compete.
1: We also have a uh, a weird tradition almost in our workplace of if I am on vacation... John Hodgman. John Hodgman Hodgman shows up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is less of a hard history segment than we would normally have, but John is a delight. Uh, Even though I'm never in the office when he is, I can attest to this fact. And to keep it at least history-oriented in the beginning, Holly made John answer some trivia questions about the history of airline loyalty programs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, but before we get to my chat with John, we are going to take a quick sponsor break, and then when we come back, we will have the delightful and charming John Hodgman. So... Now that I'm thinking about the airline industry's history, particularly as it pertains to loyalty programs, we have a guest who is the absolute perfect person at this time. Oh. Uh, John Hodgman, who okay. has a, a new book out called Medallion Status.
2: Yeah. Medallion Status is my new book of stories uh, following Vacation Land, which was a lot of stories about vacation. This is a book about work, all the weird oddball jobs that I've had in my life since I was 13. The, the traffic counting the cheese monging love it literary agenting and probably the oddest of all and most inexplicable is the period of time i spent on camera as a <laughs> famous <laughs> minor television personality and as a book about losing that job right losing all my tv jobs and feeling very panicky about my status as white men often do sure and and, and just chasing a new kind of status which was specifically to make up for the loss of my TV fame, specifically chasing diamond medallion status on Delta's frequent flyer Program,
0: although you do not name Delta in the no, my the book. book
2: is not an advertisement for Delta, right. so I refer to it as my beloved airlines.
0: <laughs> so, uh, although anybody who flies Delta would recognize all the terminology used immediately, yeah, um, it's all
2: part of the sick video game, the <laughs> sick addictive video game, which is the Sky Miles program.
0: It is. And I understand. I play that game regularly, yeah. so it seemed like a good point to kind of use you as a jumping board to talk about. Some of the history of this, but sure. then some of your history specifically with loyalty programs, Absolutely. because it's quite funny. Uh, so first, I'm going to ask you, and there are no prizes, neither are there penalties. <laughs>
2: that's looking, so. Why am I doing it? If any of these if are I'm, stumpers, if I'm not gonna if I'm not going to upgrade my status,
0: you're going to learn at the end of it. I'll oh, give right. you like a a gold star of learning. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's
2: that's good. That's so. All, as first, a only child. That's all I want is validation that I did the work. <laughs>
0: John Hodgman. Yeah. What year was the Airline Deregulation Act passed? I'm going to give you choices. Oh, okay, good. Uh, A, 1969. B, 1975. C, 1978. Or D, 1980.
2: I think that it is 1980.
0: You are two years too late. It's 1978. Uh, Yeah, because they were trying to address the fact that more global.
2: I got it wrong. I have to
0: leave. Goodbye. It is. No medallion status right you. Oh, no. They're <laughs> going to revoke it. They're going to bump you down to silver.
2: 1978, though, yes. Uh, yeah,
0: and so it's no surprise that after deregulation is immediately when these airline rewards programs started popping up. Right, of course. Uh, literally a year later, a small carrier, Texas International Airlines, started offering a miles program in 1979. And then right on its heels... There were larger airlines that, of course, were like, yes, we need to stay competitive. So, they started offering their own loyalty programs. Which of these three large airlines offered the first loyalty program? Okay. Was it American, Mm -hmm. United, Mm -hmm. or Delta?
2: You know, I'm a Delta person. I know you are. But I don't think they started this. And... I have a feeling it was America.
0: You are correct. It's American. It's their... um,
2: Advantage. I was going to
0: say, I never know if I should call it a... uh, Advantage or... Advantage. 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 But uh, that is the oldest airline loyalty program still running. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because they started theirs in 81. I was Platinum Elite Plus there for a brief
2: time. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Fancy Pants
2: Unicorn. Again, as with all of these things, mostly it's just like a, a card you have. (laughs) Or a a logo on your app, and you don't know if it's any different at all, except you got it and someone else doesn't have it.
0: Yeah. Right. The next and last question of little importance, although historically interesting, and people love the trivia around this particular airline.
2: Oh, okay.
0: What was the name of Pan Am's loyalty program? Was it A, Air Pass, B, Sky Pass, or C, World Pass?
2: Uh, I'm going to say World
0: Pass. You're correct. Yeah. See, two out of three. You're fine. Right. If you, Thank you. if it's... you were a baseball player, you'd be miraculous. Uh, for that it would, average,
2: it would be a miracle if right? I could play baseball. <laughs> yes, that's good. Uh,
0: and then, of course, when they folded, and there's many moving parts to what happened with the end of Pan Am, but right. their um, their program, people that were holding those miles, went into Delta's program. Oh, interesting. So they didn't they didn't lose them all.
2: I knew that it had to be Pan Am because it, I knew you were talking about Pan Am when you talked about people were interested because people are fetishistic about the history of Pan Am. There's,
0: there's. The logos
2: of Pan Am. The, yes. The design history of Pan Am. It's a lot there.
0: We, um, my husband's parents lived next to someone that used to work in the travel industry. And so we have a bunch of vintage Pan Am posters. Oh, wow. And yeah. you would think that we are magical and cool with these hanging in our lounge. But really, we just. Kind of inherited them. We're right. not as, I feel guilty knowing still that there are magical and cool Pan Am people that would probably like really love to have them. And one day I'll find one of those people and have a magnanimous gesture, but. Or you can just sell them,
2: fleece them, fleece those. That's
0: not how I fleece do Fleece those Pan Am nerds, those world nerds. F- I'm not a fleecer. Um, but see, I
2: knew that Pan Am's, Pan Am, first of all, I knew in its history emphasized its international travel. Yes. And of course, at John F. Kennedy, Pan Am opened the world port. Mm hmm. Which was their super fancy jet age Jetsons looking yeah. home terminal that featured it looked like a giant mushroom and it's uh, because the central the central terminal was a was a what you might call it a uh, cylinder and on top there's this big overhang so that jets could pull up to the terminal and you could walk out to the jet without yeah. getting wet but then almost immediately after they created this they started using larger jets they couldn't go up to the terminal of course. And I only knew about it because I it became a Delta terminal. Right. And I flew out of the world port uh, about a year before it was finally demolished. And
0: Is it because you had been there?
2: They said, that's it. Well, we're just waiting for Hodgman <laughs> to go through. <laughs> then we can start taking this thing apart brick by brick. And it had fallen into profound disrepair because yes. they had no interest in repairing it. And it's historically, I mean, architecturally beautiful and of its time. But in impractical as a terminal. Right. And by the time, this was, I'm, I must have been 2011, 2012, 20, maybe even 2013, because they only recently got rid of it. Yeah. And, at, you know, at the same time that they're lovingly renovating the TWA terminal over by JetBlue, the Erosarin TWA terminal, which is now a hotel, uh, they were just letting this piece of pop art crumble. yeah. And there were birds, colonies of birds living inside, and water dripping everywhere. It was like you were walking through an abandoned <laughs> tropical temple. I it was love like it. a Disneyland set, frankly. And right. They had big, huge, like orange, translucent garbage bags to collect leak water with these valves and and plastic pipes, siphoning the water away. It was like a set from the movie Brazil. That is a so little
0: post apocalyptic. Yeah, it was
2: very. <laughs> It was really intense and and it was the 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 final the once glorious jewel in the Pan Am crown had now been totally tarnished and crushed yeah. and crumbled and it was sad to be a part of World Pass.
0: Uh so you've already told us some of your travel history, but uh yeah. you named your book after your uh medallion status. I used
2: two words, medallion right. and status to right. go together.
0: Will you um just give us a little bit of your history as it relates to, like, your personal history yeah. of flying and particularly becoming, and I say this with absolutely no shame, an addict to this kind of system because we all get in it. It's, des- I mean, it's designed,
2: it's it's it's
0: gamifying consumer Completely. activity. Completely.
2: And, I mean, it, obviously it goes back all, all the way to a time before there were video games, honestly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Some- yeah. It's the, it's the original it's the in app purchase, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> like, commercial mind control. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, uh, my name's John Hodgman. Uh, I'm a writer, comedian, actor. I used to be on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart when Jon Stewart was on the show. Now, what was that? The Daily Show <laughs> with Jon Stewart. It was a daily comedy show. <laughs> and that opened the door to a, a very, impract- uh, as I say, implausible career on camera. And I got to do some acting work, and I still do, still do a little bit, but but less than ever before. But there was a period between 2013 and, and 2016 or so when I was traveling a lot by air, partly as a touring comedian and storyteller, and partly as a uh, being flown across the country back and forth all the time for a small role on an FX cable comedy show called Married that doesn't exist anymore. And I was on this show, I was I was the third best friend of the leading friend. <laughs> I wasn't like even the vice best friend. I was like the president pro tempore best friend. <laughs> the secretary case, of
0: friendship. <laughs> yeah. In case
2: the in case the other two best friends disappeared, I would I would get to be this guy's best friend. Nice. And by contract as a guest star, they had to pay for my flights. Right. And they had and they were contractually obligated to fly me first class. And I was going back and forth on Delta. Arbitrarily. I had never wandered. I had been in a a program. I had been an Advantage uh, account. I still do. Ah, Advantage. Mm -hmm. But i had never chosen any of these walled gardens to get trapped in. But it just happened to be Delta. And it just happened to be that I was flying back and forth so fast that I was racking up all these regular miles and also all these medallion qualifying miles. And this is where the gaming really gets hot. Because you can earn miles now. You earn miles on anything, credit card purchases, whatever it is. These so-called miles, these reward points that you can then trade in for, like, a thousand miles to a dollar, right? You can buy half of a one-way flight to Toledo uh, with miles, or you can trade all your miles in instead and buy a single French fry uh, delivered to your door on Seamless or Grubhub or whatever. Like, it's not (laughs) an efficient way to buy things, you know? I did. I'll tell you one thing, though. I, I racked up so many – it's a different loyalty program, but so many Amex rewards points Yeah, that I was able to buy my son the Stranger Things Lego set. Oh, yeah. Which is an incredible it's Lego set. It's a beautiful set. set. It's a beautiful set, and I am not surprised that you – you're a bit of a Lego oh. head. You're a go-head. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. And I don't know what they were charging for it when it was released, but it very quickly became highly sought after and hard to get. So it was a $350 Lego set. Yeah. And I was like, I can't pay $350 for a Lego set, even though it would be so fun to work on this with my son. But then I realized I could cash in all of my Amex rewards points. There you go. And there were a lot of them. Do you know what I mean? That's yes. a lot of points.
0: Because but- I have an Amex Delta. So I understand. I'm oh, yeah. double gamed in. Delta Reserve? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I'm just a
0: regular
2: Oh, bathroom. no, 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 no. You got to upgrade. Upgrade to Delta Reserve. I don't have to. Well, I don't even know why I'm talking to you right now because I have Delta Reserve. <laughs> right? That's an, we'll, we'll cover that you in like, a second. Come back
0: when you get some fancy pants, lady. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I I didn't care about any of this stuff. But that's, for me, a nice use of using points. Like something you would never want to pay cash for. Yeah. A splurge item that you yeah, can, perfect. you know. And I was also getting these medallion qualifying miles, MQMs, as they say in the game. And these are the miles that you accrue. They're apportioned differently, not just to miles travel. Because – it's not a one-to-one. Right. Because if you're uh, if you're traveling first class, you will earn more medallion qualifying miles on the same flight than if you're a flying coach or, yeah. you know, whatever they call it, premium economy or whatever. And these are the ones that determine what your status is as a flyer. And you start at zero. You earn a certain number of MQMs and you lock in silver medallion, mm-hmm. then gold medallion, then platinum medallion, and then, well, I'll tell you about the next thing. I pretty quickly made it to gold without even noticing just because I was flying so much. Yeah. The only way I found out was that I was going on a flight home, and the person, as I was checking in, the the woman at the gate who scanned my barcode, she looked at and she said, Thank you, Mr. Hodgman, for being gold. And I, it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life.
0: Like a magical dopamine
2: hit. It was so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know— it's one thing, you, you know, for someone from an airline to treat you like a human being and simply say thank you. And then for them to know your name. Now you feel famous. <laughs> and then to say thank you for being gold. I mean, if you're an only child as I am and, and totally reliant upon praise and acknowledgement as if it were oxygen, do you know what I mean? Like uh, sure. Being re- thanked for being gold was a very powerful, bad feedback for me. It's like, and you know, everyone thinks, you know. It's like one of the things I talk about in my book is I'm not recognized that much anymore, and yet when I am, I, I, it's still wonderful because even even if it is at the as in the beginning of the book, this young couple that approach me in our you know in our town that we that we spend part of the year in in coastal Maine, and they're like, hey, it's John Hodgman, and I'm having a fight with my wife. <laughs> Because we're both freaking out over the fact that our, our Jeep dropped its heater core and the, and the passenger footwell is filling up with engine coolant, but we don't know what engine coolant is. And it just looks like our Jeep is bleeding to death.
0: Best day ever. <laughs> yeah.
2: And all of a sudden, these nice people come and they go, hey, it's John Hodgman. And I'm like, oh, this is the worst time. I'm sorry that you just saw me yelling at my wife. But, okay, I'm going to get it together and be nice because it's a gift. It's a gift to be seen. It's a gift to be recognized. Yeah. Most people on Earth aren't seen or recognized, even by their members of their own family, really. Do you know, like, mm-hmm. for someone to express interest in you, it's, it's wonderful. And it's not something you expect when you're boarding a plane to Minneapolis or to go home to Brooklyn or whatever. <laughs> so to be seen, say, thank you, John Hodgman, for being gold, even though it's this arbitrary, right, dumb tattoo that this company has put on you. <laughs> it feels like... People feel like, you know, everyone goes through life saying, like, I think I'm gold. I think I'm gold, but no one sees that I'm gold. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure that I'm gold. I'm worried I'm not gold. I'm worried that I've been tricking myself into being, you know, into gold imposter yeah, syndrome. <laughs> I've I'm worry I'm worried that I've I've been tricking everyone into thinking that I have value, but I'm not sure that I have value. But all of a sudden there's a stranger. In a in a patterned vest saying, thank you for being gold. It was a really powerful feeling. And all of this, I mean, I think that what started for airlines as a simple, like they needed a way to retain customers because suddenly it was much more competitive in the marketplace. It was a loyalty rewards program, literally. But but I think for people that I've talked to who get deep into the into the medallion status game, it's really hard not to take it personally. <laughs> it's really I, hard yeah, not to take I, yeah, it personally. Like yeah. to to have it feel like there is some special validation to being platinum medallion for example, which yes. is a step above gold. Yes. I
0: which I really um am eager to get to soon for an aesthetic weird reason. Which is what? When your gold status, your yeah. boarding pass on your phone has the ugliest background color of oh, all time.
2: right. And I'm
0: only like two flights away right. from getting rid of that.
2: Right. You're going to hit platinum? Yes. It's very, very exciting. I'm There's just, a little ceremony. I don't want to spoil it for you.
0: I'm just ready to not look at that particular shade of like rust brown yeah. anymore. Well, because it's
2: reminding you, you're not platinum. <laughs>
0: I didn't mind when I was just silver because it was that pretty gray with a little sheen to it. Yeah, it's the color. It's really a purely aesthetic for me.
2: Silver is a garbage medallion. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Let's stop. <laughs> and then, after traveling for a while, my TV show was canceled, and that was g- good news ultimately because this travel was really, the amount of travel I was doing was really hurting my family, my my children. Had grown to an age without my watching, without my noticing. They had grown up to an age where they actually cared about me. Mm-hmm. Mostly, they like they were always fond of me, and I of them. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I had been traveling and touring, and you know, taking chunks of time to be away from my family for all of their growing up. And when they're when kids are young, they they're resilient to that. But my son had grown up to a point early, you know, preteens. My daughter was in her very early teens, and they were noticing I was gone, and it was hard, and it was hard for me too because I was starting to appreciate they were going to disappear for real, not actually, but to grow up and go away soon, right? So even though it was hard for that job to end, and it was the first time that I had no jobs on television, and that was scary, I was glad to be home. And then I got an email from Delta saying, you haven't been traveling lately. We just want to remind you, you're only 7,000 MQMs Away from making diamond medallion. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, diamond medallion. Is that what? not
0: like such a dealer move?
2: I'm like, I can't, I have to get to diamond. Like, what does it offer? What advantages does it offer? I, I Very minimal. Very few perks. I mean, I guess you get to board the plane first and sit in the pilot's lap. I right. don't know. Something like that.
0: He feeds you candy.
2: They don't know. They don't.
0: <laughs> And it doesn't do anything. And they hug you into your nap.
2: (laughs) Yeah. None of that. None of that. I mean, you you are ostensibly on a on a priority list for complimentary upgrades, right? But those never seem to happen to me anyway. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know Hmm. why. Very rarely. And then you get some other little perks, but mostly it was there is an imaginary medallion that someone has that I don't, and I want it. And this is my last chance to get it too, because my show has been canceled. And if I don't make the way these things work, and this is why it's so insidious, is you log up your MQMs per year, and that locks in your medallion status for the the following year. So I knew that I was locked in for platinum for next year. But if I didn't make diamond now, at the end of the year, all my MQMs would zero out. I'd have to start building them up again. I would stay platinum, but gradually, because I wouldn't be traveling as much, even though it was better for my family, I would be home with my children, and my children would be watching me as I dwindled from platinum to gold to silver and to nothing. I didn't want my children to see that.
0: Boarding group main three. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) And you know what happens? What I learned over the course of this experience with fame, which is a very weird kind of status, it's very specific, but it's also... A pretty, a pretty good indicator of what all status is, what all privilege is. Like, it's often just arbitrary, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you get famous for something, all of a sudden people want to give you stuff for free. And you get invited to gifted, gifting lounges at the Emmys, and you get free jeans and free shoes. And John Lithigo is there. And
0: wearing free jeans and free wearing shoes. Wearing free jeans
2: and free shoes. And he says, it's John Hodgman. I mean, that's a very specific memory from my life. Yeah. But when you get stuff for free, whether it's because uh, – by for free, I mean without payment – or maybe just more easily without others. Uh, more easily than others do. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So whether you get stuff for free because you've been on TV or you're born in America as a, as a straight white male. Right. You know, play, as John Scalzi would say, playing life on the easy, on the easy <laughs> mode. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. When you don't have to be afraid. You, you, statistically speaking, you don't think that you might be under threat every right. time you walk into a room because of how you look or who you are. Uh, you You can't, a, you don't, you don't, you stop noticing that you're getting this stuff for free, stop being thankful for it. And because it's just happening to you because, right? Yeah. You have to convince yourself that you've earned it, you know? <laughs> and sitting in first class, the first time you ever get bumped up to first class is almost always accidental. You know, like yeah. you get bumped up or there is a mistake or someone is paying for you and you get to be in first class. You didn't buy that ticket necessarily yourself. Right. Very rarely. I and you think. sit there in first class and you're like, this is the most insanely happy thing to ever happen to me. Look at this. I get a sleep mask. Look, I, they're treating me like a human being. I get this jar of Brazil nuts that's been warmed in a microwave for free. Like, I'm so lucky in the world. And then by the time you're landing, you're like, well, of course I'm sitting up here. I'm the, I'm the smartest and most successful person in the world. You they know.
0: actually uh, are gassing the first-class cabin to keep everybody happy yeah, and, no, and confident. When you
2: <laughs> when you get status, when you get privilege, there are legitimate things that you earn in this life. But there are also things that you get just because that's the way the law works or that's the way the market works or whatever. And when you get stuff for free, your mind quickly convinces itself you deserve it. It's, oh, a, yes. it's a layer of self-protection, yeah. right? And then when the status is taken away, for whatever reason, uh, historical change or your TV show is canceled or whatever else, Your mind goes into a weird panic mode. Maybe not everybody's.
0: No, I think you're tapping into something very human, right? If you look at conflict throughout history, it is. Like you said, it's that self-protection. Like you would feel guilty if you didn't feel like you earned it. So you convince yourself you earned it. And then when you lose it, you feel shame over it. Right.
2: You feel shame. That's exactly right. Because you've lost this thing. The
0: motivator for so much poor behavior historically (laughs) of humans. Well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, yeah.
2: Everything from chasing diamond medallion status to voting for a particular presidential candidate because <laughs> you feel that your historical privilege is being taken away mm-hmm. and you feel you feel your status slipping and people do irrational things well you know and parents too one of the interviewers who talked to me about the book for publishers weekly whose name has escaped me for a moment but you can look it up she's a wonderful uh, writer i apologize she made a connection that i didn't even make in my own book because a lot of my book is talking about parenting and and, and my kids and it's like when you're a uh, when you're a parent of young kids, you are extremely famous. You are the most famous person to walk into that room. It's extremely gratifying. Like it's extremely gratifying to walk into a room where someone goes, "It's John Hodgman." You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like presuming you're John Hodgman. And whether that's John you know when it or your to child, me, it's
0: always so weird. Yeah, and I know, I'm it's like, a I don't under- understand what's happening. But okay, I'm just going to roll <laughs> but with it. you know, it. you
2: are a total celebrity to your kids. You know what I mean? And then they get older and you lose that status. Like they start to see you for your flaws. And you're no longer they have start to have their own thoughts and feelings and lives and so forth. And we all deal with parents who are also aging out of their careers. Mm -hmm. They're losing their their jobs. They're losing their influence over their worlds. And it's a you know it's there are inflection points in life where status just drops, and people deal with it very poorly most of the time. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's what midlife crisis is for for guys for sure. You know. So anyway, this is all to say. I'm, I get this note saying I'm 7,000 MQMs away from Diamond. And I'm like, I need to have this. And I, I'm i like, the, how am I going to do it? Now there is. I'm not sure if there still was this a secret website you could go to just pay them a bunch of money to, to jump up to Diamond.
0: It's a black market of, of status.
2: Yeah, yeah it's just, it's a secret website. I think it's delta.com slash elevate your status is actually the, the – <laughs> But I didn't know about that at the time. I thought I had to go somewhere. That
0: doesn't sound very black market. I thought I had
2: to earn it. So I'm, I'm up at 2 a.m. now pricing flights, trying to figure out, you know, here we are coming up. It's December. We're, the holidays are coming up. I don't have time to be away. I have commitments everywhere. The only way I can make Diamond Medallion is if I fly first class to get those extra MQMs from JFK to LAX and then fly back immediately.
0: Just get a cocktail at LAX and whip it around.
2: <laughs> and I and it was going to cost thousands of dollars, never mind the amount of, you know, carbon footprint that I was adding to my life right. that was unnecessary. Right. It was total waste. And then I thought about how I could possibly explain this to my son as I got up. And, you know, he's been traumatized because I've been flying away so long, but he's always a good sport. I would say, I'm sorry, I have to fly today. And you go, you're going to work. I understand. I'm like, well, not really for work. <laughs> Not really for anything. I just have to go and get an imaginary medallion. You just in, lean Los in his Angeles.
0: whisper and go yeah. in his in his ear and whisper diamond
2: medallion. Yeah. I just have to there's an imaginary diamond medallion in Los Angeles, and I have to go get it because and you'll understand this, son. You're a gamer, right? You gotta you gotta <laughs> power up. You gotta this is a magic dot that if I eat it, I will turn big. And then I can turn around. And all those ghosts that have been chasing me through this maze of insecurity. And self loathing, they're going to turn scared, and I can eat them for once. And finally, I'll be loved by a major corporation for a whole year. So it's worth it. I won't tell you whether or not I booked the flight. Okay. You have to read the book.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, I think it's a nice, you know, microcosmic uh, example of how we trade ourselves for validation. Yeah. Which is, again, a historical problem. <laughs> <laughs> you see in so many conflicts, if you break it down to the component parts and the decision makers, yeah. it's a very similar thing. They don't yeah. know that that's what they're chasing. They're not cognizant right. that it's diamond medallion status, but it almost always is.
2: And, you know, the, there is one thing that Donald Trump really, really craves, and that's validation. And he's he's wanted it his whole life. And he lives in consistent insecurity, even— even though he is the president of the United States, he is consistently afraid yeah. of losing status. Yeah. And acts acts like certain people who are afraid of losing status act, which is rashly. I'll say, I'll say that.
0: So polite. No. Uh, your book is out October 15th. Is that, that is correct? correct, yes. I just remembered that. Thank I didn't you. even
2: have it written down. And if this isn't – I don't know when this – I don't either. Right. So attention time travelers. <laughs> if you have landed in this timeline – before October fifteenth, twenty nineteen, you may pre-order my book by going to bit.ly. That's b i t . l y slash medallion status. All one word, all capital letters. Bit.ly slash medallion status. That is a URL, which is the the that is a an, an address to a website, a form of information we use during this time. <laughs> it may be antique to you, or it may be the far future to you. I don't know time travelers. but if you land after October fifteenth, you can go to that website and buy it. You can go to a bookstore and buy it, audiobook, ebook, hardcover, or you can come see me on my book tour, which goes through November, johnhodgman.com slash tour. That's another URL for a website.
0: I bet you could buy it at airports, too.
2: I hope so. I think
0: that's fabulous.
2: I really want to do some off-the-cuff readings at the Sky Club, the Delta <laughs> Sky Club I
0: love at that JFK. idea so much. Yeah. Um, there's a, a fun story that you tell in your book about the first time you get into first class by kind of just... Inviting yourself in there. yeah. Um, and there's a line in that segment that I really loved, which was when you get away with something brash and ridiculous and unfair, it is natural for you to feel that it is perfectly natural. Um, I don't know that it, brash applies, but it feels ridiculous and unfair that I got to spend this time just chatting with you because what a oh, delight for me. To me,
2: it feels perfectly natural. Yay. <laughs> Yay.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank John. you so
2: much. What a pleasure. Um good luck with history. We'll fix it. We're still we're <laughs> still making more of it, so you should have You should have a podcast for a long time to come. We hope. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, we are categorizing John Hodgman as our listener mail today because this is a long episode. But thank you so much, John, for hanging out and talking to me. The part you won't hear in that is uh, John and I talking about Disney parks for a shocking amount of time before we ever got to airline discussion.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry I missed you, John. (laughs) I was in the internetless
0: hills of the border between New York and Pennsylvania. You know, everybody's got to have some time away. You got to unplug. If you are still plugged in and would like to reach out to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us anywhere on uh, social media as Missed in History and MissedInHistory.com is our website. Uh, we would love it if you would subscribe to the show. That's kind of like our listener loyalty program subscription, right? Um, <laughs> and if you do that, uh, you could do that at Apple Podcasts, on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever it is that you listen.